We're going to continue in a series that we began a little while ago about some of the ancient images out of the, the Old Testament ancient images that portray Christ and, and types that started in the Old Testament that Christ fulfilled in the New Testament. And I'm going to carry that on today with the imagery of the bread, uh, the bread of heaven. I am a bread guy. I love bread. My go-to, I was saying to Mandy in the office, when I grew up in our, in our home, my mom would bake 10 loaves of bread every week. And we had six kids in the family, so that's a lot of bread that we would go through. And, and you know, you love it. You love the smell of fresh baked bread. And we enjoy eating fresh baked bread on Monday when she'd bake. On Tuesday, by the time you get to Friday, not so much because it's not quite so fresh. And so as children growing up in that, you don't realize, you know, what it means to have mom and dad bake bread. So we always wanted store-bought bread. Store-bought bread was, was always the best. And so every so often, grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, and there's a little community called Camrose, Alberta, about 45 minutes kind of south of us. And they had what's called the Jaywalker's Jamboree. And so every so often it would be a treat when dad would pack us in the car and we would go to Camrose to Jay Walker's Jamboree. And dad's solution to feeding us was driving to IGA, picking up a loaf of store-bought bread, picking up some sliced meat, and that's it. So you get bread, meat, and bread. No mayo, no mustard, no nothing. And I loved it. It's my comfort food. I still do it to this day. So on days when I forget to bring a lunch to work, I'll go to Safeway. I don't buy the whole loaf of bread, but I get fresh bread, a couple slices of meat, put them together, and it's my go-to. I love bread. I love chicken noodle soup with a good rye, a good German rye, right? I love, um, you know, go to Ricky's for breakfast, and you got to have a good sourdough to go with your breakfast, Right? My wife and I are going to head off to Germany in just a couple of days, and we're looking forward to those Deutsche Brötchen. I love my breads. Bread is just a comfort food. Last Sunday in children's ministry, um, I did something I've never done with them. We actually baked unleavened bread last week. And, and it's a very simple recipe, like four items in the recipe, and we put it together, and you know, when you got a bunch of hands in there and fingers, it just adds a little bit to the bread, right? And we, we mushed it all together, and we actually baked unleavened bread, and, and we talked about what it was to have unleavened bread. And I brought a loaf of store-bought bread as a prop, you know, and I wanted to show them the difference between, you know, the nice loafy bread, and our unleavened bread did not look like that at all. Um, and some kids loved it, they ate it all, and some kids, after one nibble, go, nah, no thanks. And then, of course, they're looking at my store-bought bread, <laughs> and it went like that, gone, just gone. You know, bread, we love bread. I want to talk about bread as, as that image, as that type that Jesus Christ fulfilled. So we're going to be in Exodus 16 and also in John chapter 6, most of our time, will be spent in John chapter 6. But Exodus chapter 16 is where it first begins, and we know the story well. Uh, God just created his miracle after 430 years of slavery in Egypt. 
God heard the cry of his people, and through Moses, God rescues his people out of slavery. And if we know the story well, you have the whole incident of the unleavened bread, and that's the point I tried to make to the children last Sunday, was that Moses instructed his people, you know, you don't have the time to bake a nice yeast loaf of bread when you're running from your enemies. And so they were to be ready at the moment's notice to pack what you can, pack the flour, pack the oil, and go when you had to go. And I tried to share with the kids last week that bread, the unleavened bread, is kind of a symbol for trust. Because you can trust God, you can trust Moses, that not only are we going to escape our captors, but when we're out in the wilderness, God will also protect us. He'll take care of us. He can deliver. He can rescue, but He can also deliver. So you get that great story of, you know, getting through the Sea of Reeds and the Israelites are able to watch as the Pharaoh's army gets literally swallowed up in the waters. It's a great story of God's carrying them. But then look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they came out of Egypt. So if we use our calendar, that's about 75 days-ish, 75 days later. Am I right? I think I'm kind of close. I mean, if if they have a 30-day calendar like ours. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Huh? You just witnessed God pulling you out of... You just got through the Sea of Reeds. You just witnessed what goes on. And, you know, the other factor that I find kind of curious is, um, we're told in Exodus 12, 36, that when the Israelites left, they plundered Egypt. Because of all the plagues, the Egyptians were only too happy to get them out of their country. They had just lost the firstborn of every household. The Egyptians were just too eager to get them out. And and we're told that God turned the Egyptians' hearts favorable toward the Israelites. And so they not only fled, it seems like they fled wealthy. 75 days later, when you're in the harsh desert land, in the hostile environment, what does that wealth do for you when you cannot provide basic bread? The basic essentials of what you need to survive. More than that, you know, they begin to grumble. Well, you think, well, of course. And more than that, they regretted even having left Egypt in the first place. And they began to yearn for the glory days of slavery. When we sat around pots full of food. Somehow they forgot that little piece. You know, they had no freedoms. They had no rights. But they had food. You know, if you reverse just to Exodus 15, 31, we kind of get that summary statement. The Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. That didn't last very long, did it? Because they were lacking the very essentials necessary for basic survival. See, at this point, they no longer feared the Egyptians. The threat wasn't upon them from a slave driver or the harsh working conditions. Their needs were just a whole lot more basic than that. Basic bread, meat, water, 
They, crumb, they grumbled against Moses, and not against Moses only, but also the Lord that Moses represented. Was this God still present? Was he still listening? Was he capable? Was he able not only to rescue, but can he also provide? You see, the need was real. And the cry was justified. Now, on our side of history, we tend to be pretty quick to cast judgment on those people. You know, we read this story and go, come on, you just... What did God just do for you? And we're quick to chastise them for their lack of faith and trust in God who just rescued them like two and a half months ago. By the way, do you remember what you were doing two and a half months ago? Sometimes you have to really turn your mind going, so much has gone on. But you know what? I highly doubt that I would have acted a whole lot differently myself. If I'm the father of my household, and it's my job to provide for the basic needs of my family, and I trusted this man named Moses, I went from what was familiar into the wilderness, because this is what God's calling us to do, because this is what we're going to do, and now I find myself, I cannot even provide for the basic necessities of my own family. No wonder I'd be crying out to God, going, The cry is real. The situation is desperate. And so we pan out on the scene. We discover Moses as the one who stands between an angry mob and Almighty God. And then here in Exodus chapter 16, God shows up in very, very real ways, in very mighty ways. He provides for their basic needs, and He does so faithfully and consistently. Exodus chapter 16, verse 35. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. 40 years they ate manna. So I asked the kids last Sunday when we had our unleavened bread, I said, can you imagine eating that every day for 40 years? Manna, manna, the bread from heaven, the daily provision for their daily needs, just enough at just the right time. By this bread, the Lord sustained and he nourishes his people. And in this account, we're reminded of the God who provides, the one who sustains, the one who's not only able to rescue us, but he can carry us to that promised destination. He's a powerful God. He's also a benevolent God. And here in Exodus, we read that summary. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, we get a different summary. In Deuteronomy, we're told that He, that is God, humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we get an image now that is more than the bread. In fact, it's not about the bread. But bread is the staple. Bread is, is, is an imagery to, under, to first understand it's a staple food. It's the basic food we need. I mean, we think of this. I mean, what would be the staple food 
of us North Americans? Well, it depends, maybe. A little bit on your tradition, on your history. I mean, in my household, if it wasn't because, again, we were German, if it wasn't the bread, it was potatoes. It wasn't a meal unless there were potatoes on the table. My dad was adamant about that. There had to be potatoes. But see, in North America, we have a hard time because we can go to Superstore or Save-On and we can choose from a plethora of food. What is a staple food? You know, if you go to any country that is not as endowed as we are, that is struggling, and staple means a lot more to them. If it happens to be rice or if it happens to be something cornmeal, that's the staple. You need that every day. Bread is kind of that imagery of that staple food. So what is this manna? And I found it curious. I did a little bit of a dive into, you know, what is in the Jewish tradition? What is written in some of their writings? And I found it interesting. Um, the word manna, is, there's been a bit of discussion as to what manna actually is or what it means. And most of them will say it actually is mon, M-O-N, mon. And there's kind of differences of opinion. One says that mon means a portion of food. They didn't know what it was, but they received a portion of food every day, just enough for that day. Others explain that mon is the Egyptian for what. So they just spent all this time in Egypt. They would have understood some of their languages. And it just means what. In other words, what is this? This stuff came down from heaven. I've never seen it before. What is it? And so for that reason, they call it manna. The NIV kind of translates it that way as well. In a parenthesis, they say manna means, what is it? I don't even know what it is. A third interpretation is that the root of mon means status or importance. Because this manna came down from heaven, it must be significant, it must be important. And they go, well, what is it? Well, it came from the heavens, so therefore it's important. Manna. Manna was the size of a coriander seed and the color of white bedolach. Not sure what that is. Now, this comes from Jewish writings, and I, I, I've never read this before. And I thought that was kind of interesting. In order that the manna remain clean, a north wind would blow, sweeping the ground, and then rain would wash it. The ground would then be covered with a layer of dew, and the manna would fall upon it, after which manna was covered with another layer of dew as if it were packaged in a box. That's what's written in, in their traditions. And so it was very carefully packaged. Now, they go on from that, and they say that there's three tiers of delivery of manna. So in their tradition, they will say that manna would fall in such a way that the righteous would find it at the doors of their tents. The average person, so you and I, would have to go out of the camp to gather where it fell. The wicked had to go far out and find their portions. Not sure where they they got that from. Additionally, for the righteous, it fell ready to eat, similar to baked bread. For the average person, it fell as unbaked cakes, requiring minimal preparation. And for the wicked, it came as an unprocessed form, and consequently, they had to grind it and actually bake bread out of it. It took a lot more work for them. Apparently, a person had until the fourth hour of the day to collect the manna, after which it would melt away, and actually it became like streams, and it would kind of melt away into the water systems. 
And so if other animals would be around drinking of that water, and if you were of a different nation and you happened to slaughter one of those animals, apparently you tasted a bit of the manna in the meat. So this is what's written in, in some of their traditions. The one thing that I've read a lot about this was the point of the manna, the point of this 40-year journey was so that God's people would understand the value of Torah because that's ultimately what Moses gave. And so the true manna was not necessarily this sustenance of physical food, but it was the Torah. And so that God instituted that you wouldn't have to work every day, prepare for your food, so that you can take that time and spend it in the law of God, spend it in the Torah, and you could be committed to understanding and reading the Torah. That's the true manna from heaven. And we run into this again when we get to John chapter 6. So there we have the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of of Canaan. Canaan? Canaan. Skip over to John chapter 6. I want to spend most of our time over here in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, call it the, 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 the food chapter. John chapter 6 is all about food, uh, other than one little piece in the middle, which I will skip over as well today, but it's about food. And it begins with a question. The start of John chapter 6 begins with one simple question that Jesus asks his disciples, and I want to propose that that's kind of like an object lesson. It's like Jesus says, I have a lesson I want to teach you here today in this whole section, and John puts these sections of, of John chapter 6 together, so we get it as one capsule. And the question simply is this. The question is, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Okay, I have to back it up a bit because I think you're starting to get where we are. So John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy food for these people to eat? So we get a bit of the setting here. So first we have Jesus by this point has some notoriety. People want to hear Jesus. They want to be around Jesus because he does some cool stuff. And so Jesus is on the mountainside. He's with his disciples and the crowd are gathering around. If you fast forward a couple of verses, we know that crowd is about 5,000 men plus women and children. So it's a pretty large crowd. They gather around. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, looks up, looks at the crowd and goes, Hey, Philip. How do we feed these people? Where do we go to get bread? And Philip pulls out his calculator, pulls out his spreadsheets, and he's going, well, you know, Jesus, we need, you know, this much bread. We need this. Can't be done. Right? If I had a year's worth of wages, we couldn't go and buy enough to feed these people. You know, and then while Philip is doing his spreadsheet thing, Andrew, as a side note, he's all pulling the crowd, going, you got anything in your pocket? Anybody bring a lunch? And he finds something, right? A couple of loaves, he finds some fish, brings it back to Jesus and goes, got this. Not that either of the two really solved the problem. 
Andrew at least is a bit more uh, realistic, I think, than maybe Philip. Real-life problems that demanded real-life solutions. Two things that we don't want us to miss. Back in verse 4, John puts this little line going, the Jewish Passover festival was near. The Jewish Passover festival should cause us to go back to Exodus. Should cause us to remember that John, the writer, and Jesus' intent is to now make a tie between what's about to happen and what happened. And for, we know that for the Jewish people, the Passover is very, very significant. Everything goes back to the Passover because that's when God performed that miracle, the ultimate miracle. And then we also can't miss in verse 6, when Jesus asks Philip this question, in verse 6, John gives us that commentary, kind of like as readers, we know something that Philip and Andrew don't know. Right? And John writes in there, he says, he asks this only to test him because he already had in mind what he was going to do. So what comes next is that great object lesson. And we know what happens. These few meagly, you know, bit, bit of bread, bit of fish are presented to Jesus. They're going, we can't feed them. And Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 men plus the women and the ladies and the children that would have been involved. And it says that everybody had enough to eat with leftovers. Now, I don't want to go to the leftover part, but I was always intrigued by that. Why, why does John mention that? So everyone is fed to their full and they pick up 12 basketfuls of leftover. And we can make a lot of hay with that, but we won't today. Other than for me to say, Jesus fed the people sufficiently. They had enough with leftovers. He took care of their needs and then some. And we know there are some similarities between what just happened here in the New Testament and what happened back in Egypt, back in the desert. Real needs, real life needs, and a real life solution. Manna from heaven to feed a hungry people and bread multiplied to feed a hungry people. What's their response? All hail King Jesus is their response. If you skip down to verse 14, chapter 6, verse 14, after people saw the sign, Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's an amazing miracle. All hail King Jesus, the bread king. He can take care of our basic, basic needs. And Jesus would have none of that. The object lessons planted just performed a miracle, just showed what he's capable of doing, the seed's been planted. Sometime around A.D. 100, a Roman satirical poet wrote a little line that says, the people anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and circuses. 
His point was that the government was pacifying the Roman populace and distracting them from the important issues by giving them free or cheap food and entertaining them with spectacles. It seems to be basic to the human nature that if our bellies are full and we have entertainment before our eyes, we will become distracted from anything important and fall into a stupor of apathy. And I'm wondering if Jesus knows that. Because that's really what's going on. The Israelite people, even in Jesus' day, were living in situations that were not what they wanted. They were yearning for Messiah. This Messiah would come and he would rescue us. He'd take care of our hurting stomachs because we're hungry, but more than that, they'll finally rid us of our oppressors. We can finally become all that God said we would become. And Jesus knew that was not what they needed. Skip down to verse 26. Start at verse 25. When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I say to you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. They want to make him king. They want to make him bread king, going, you're the one, you can do this. And Jesus says, no, you see me as someone who's useful. Not because of the signs, but because, well, I'm useful. I satisfied your hunger. Do not be distracted, though, from the true hunger of your soul. You see, they're seeing Jesus as useful for the bread, useful for the social needs of the day, useful for the political dreams that the people had. Useful for the physical and or emotional or physiological needs that are in our faces every day and every moment of our lives. They didn't see Jesus as precious. They only saw his gifts as precious. He will be a useful king. He will keep our bellies full. And who doesn't need a Messiah like that? Even we yearn for a Messiah like that. Jesus says, you're looking for me not because of the signs that I performed. What does he mean by signs that I performed? Very simply put, the miracle of the bread wasn't about the bread. It was about the God who provided the bread. And that as you enjoy the bread, you should look up and acknowledge where that came from and worship him, not just enjoy Good rye bread, or a good Deutsche Brötchen, or whatever your favorite is. And now Jesus begins to tell the lesson. Now he's starting to define the object lesson. He says simply, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father places a seal of approval, John 6, 27. Jesus starts to press the agenda. He's pressing the recipients of the miraculous bread to understand the deeper truth, from physical nourishment to the spiritual point. And the people are saying, hey, but look what Moses did in the desert. Here again, you get the connection because again, this is Passover's coming. 
Jesus wants to make the connection from what's going on now to what took place back in the desert. The reference point, Moses and the law of God. Are you greater than him? I tell you, John 6, 33, I tell you that it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is a bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. Did they understand that? I don't think so. Because their response is, well, always give us this bread. Always. What bread are they talking about? It's physical nourishment. It's what I need physically to make my life bearable or even better than bearable to allow us to, to, to excel, to do better. Give us that bread, Jesus. John six thirty one. The crowd responds back to Jesus and they go, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And it's kind of an accusation to Jesus. Because what they're saying is, the bread that Moses gave, remember some of the allusions I made to what, you know, some of the Jewish writings about how this bread was something more than bread? I suspect that even Jesus' audience had some of that in their own mind. Part of what I, know, I read is uh, apparently in, in the part of the Jewish history and the tradition, they'll say that not only did God rain down this manna from heaven, apparently it had like a very pleasant odor to it so that it would be perfume for the women. And apparently part of the manna that came down, it also rained down jewelry so that you could, you could wear it. And apparently this manna was so great so that if you ate it, and I go, boy, I just wish this could taste like a good German Brötchen. And as I'm eating it, guess what? It would taste like a, a good German Brötchen. And if someone else goes, boy, I really wish that this would taste like, like a very well done, medium rare steak. That's what it would taste like. Apparently that's what's written in their Jewish traditions. And I'm wondering if maybe the Israelites at Jesus' day, if that was part of their thinking. They're going, see what Moses gave us? I mean, Jesus, what you did was pretty cool. I mean, you took, you know, a couple of loaves and bread and you just multiplied it. I mean, that, that's pretty good, but it's just bread. It's stuff that we can bake ourselves. We can go to the local market. We can do this ourselves. Moses did something really, really cool. What is it? We've never seen it before, and it sustained them for 40 years. They're going, Jesus, I mean, we're going to get hungry again. You just fed 5,000 people. Can you do more? And Jesus turns this upside down because they believe that what Moses gave was truly spiritual and what Jesus gives now is just bread. And Jesus turns it upside down and he presses that here in John chapter 6 as he's pressing and pressing the illustration. And he goes, I am, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. The one. If you remember from Pastor Darren's message a number of weeks ago, when he described what that I am actually meant, the ego emi, right? I, I myself am. He says it's not about the bread. It's not even about the manna. It's about me. I am that sign. The sign that you missed isn't so that your bellies would be full, but it's all about me. It's about 
bread, that sustenance, that basic essential of what we need to survive. It's the Lord's Prayer, right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It symbolizes the essence of what we need. You see, Moses didn't say, I give you the manna from heaven, right? Moses can point to it and go, here it is. I don't know what it is, but here it is. It's called manna. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't point and go, here's the bread. Jesus said, I am. Micah 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of times. Bethlehem, in Hebrew, means house of bread. The house of bread will bring forth its greatest ever, never to be repeated loaf, the bread of life. And like the miracle that Jesus performed, this was a loaf that would be given and multiplied over and over and over in the lives of countless believers throughout the ages. This is Jesus. We started John chapter 6 as the crowd was big. They were curious. They were wondering what's going on with this Jesus. And as we move through John chapter 6, the crowd starts to thin. And here in John 6, 41, we get their response. Remember, the first response was, let's hail him as king. And now Jesus is starting to talk nonsense. When he says, I am the bread of life, and now the people are grumbling At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread from heaven. And Jesus' response to them, as he continues to press the lesson, John chapter 6, 43 to 58, let me summarize that, when he simply says, I am the bread of life. Just as their ancestors once did, despite witnessing a great miracle, the Jews were just grumbling in their response to a complaint. God unveils his solution, already foretold. Christ is the living bread for us to eat daily. And he goes directly to them when he says, you need to eat my flesh, you need to drink my blood. And we have to understand how shocking that is to his audience. Is Jesus talking cannibalism? Is that what he's saying? Because if you read, and I'm I'm summarizing quickly because my time's going away on me, because the people are going, we know you, Jesus. We know you came from Nazareth. We know who your mom and dad are. We know who your family are. You are going to stand in front of us and say, eat me. I mean, that is just beyond absurd. No wonder the crowds just started walking away and started leaving, going, this is a crazy man. Is Jesus talking cannibalism? Obviously not. But he's also not talking about communion at this point. Because many, many commentators I've read on this go, well, Jesus is talking about communion. He's talking about the sacrament. Right? That's his reference. But remember, that hasn't been instituted yet. He's still there among them. The crucifixion hasn't happened yet. Jesus is saying it's not about this physical bread. It's about 
me. It's a metaphor. You have to take me in. It's not enough to just come and listen. It's not enough to come and admire and get some information. You have to eat. You have to appropriate. You have to receive me regularly, daily, weekly, annually, year upon year, upon decade, upon decade. I need to be your steady diet. I need to be your staple. And the response, this is a hard teaching. Who can take it? And the crowd thinnens again. In fact, if you go all the way to the end of John, you, John chapter 6, if you go to the end of the chapter, because Jesus is talking about food throughout the whole chapter, if you go to the end, you basically have Jesus and his disciples. Because at the end of John chapter 6, he looks at his disciples and going, are you going to leave as well? Start with a big crowd at the beginning and you end down to just a few. Starts off with curiosity. We have a little bit of admiration because, wow, look what Jesus did. You have a little bit of convincing because they could give us this bread. I mean, give us, yeah, it's really cool. But then as Jesus points out the actual lesson, you have disbelief. And then you have dissatisfaction. And that continues to outright rejection and finally defection. I kind of like that, that progression that you have happen in John chapter 6, the food chapter. Jesus the bread of life, is still the bread of life. So what? So what do we do with this? The, the lesson, the application is so simple and so clear and so obvious, but yet we need to be reminded of it every day all the time, that Jesus is the essential that we need for survival, the basis of it. It's more than just filling our bellies. It's about enveloping all that we are and can be, and that is in Jesus. Just a couple of scripture passages as I close. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55, 2 and 3. Why spend money on what is not bread? Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. And this is as necessary for us in our century as it was back then. Because I think we're all pretty much on the same page. We spend about 40 hours a week spending money on what is not bread, don't we? We work very hard to get our life to be where it is, to be comfortable. We have cars to maintain and properties to take care of and mortgages to pay. And in that, we can be distracted and forget it's not about that. Right? Deuteronomy 8.3. I read this earlier. He humbled you. He humbles us, causing us to hunger and then feeding us with manna that which neither us or our forefathers had known to teach us that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the midst of our daily struggles and responsibilities and what we need to do, we know we need to feed on the Word of God regularly. We need to eat and drink Jesus' flesh, Jesus' blood. Sounds kind of nasty, doesn't it? We hate using that kind of language. Every time we celebrate communion, we are reminded that's exactly what we need to be doing. And it is hard language. But yet we understand that is what it means when we receive Jesus and we feed on Him. 
Because it's the spiritual food that actually sustains us. Psalm 34, verse 8. I love this one. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, it's that take the risk. Dare to trust Him. Dare to get into His Word and dare to take Him at His Word. That's what it means to taste and see. Personally receive Him through faith and live in belief and trust every day. Renewing it every day. Because in Psalm 107 verse 9, For He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. True nourishment comes from Him. Because John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, like the Jews back in Exodus 16 and the crowd in John chapter 6, we too have needs. We too have the basic need of everyday survival. Some of us are doing a little bit better at this than maybe other of us. But it is the essence of our work to provide for the essentials of our life, of our physical lives. We too come to God with a mixture of complaints and grumblings and yearnings for sustenance and God answers with a very simple question. Have you tasted Jesus? Have you received Him? John 6 is a passage for hungry people, needy people, people who are trying to navigate just everyday life. And and Jesus answers that need by providing bread. Are you hungry? What are you feeding on? Are you returning to Jesus time and time and time again? Some of us have journeyed this path of faith for many, many years. And even those of us who have been believers for a long time still need to come to Him regularly, eat His flesh, drink His blood, immerse ourselves and taste and see that the Lord is good. I trust that you can do that even this week. Let me close us in prayer. Father, I want to thank you that you have demonstrated and you are the fulfillment of our basic everyday need. There are times when we recognize that, yeah, you're quite useful. You're useful for our way that we approach life, but more than that, you are the sign. You're the one that we are to believe and to trust entirely, wholeheartedly, unreservedly with every aspect of our life. Father, I pray that we would come and taste and see that you indeed are good. You're good to rescue us, but you're also the one who can sustain us. You are the bread of life. Thank you, Father, for that. Amen.